Hello and welcome to another episode of the Closer Look Podcast. I'm Tara Smith, Digital Content Director at Times Review Media Group. It's Thursday, October 27th, and we're weeks away from a midterm election that could decide the balance of power in Washington. Our editorial team recently met with Republican Nick Lolota, a Navy veteran and chief of staff to the Suffolk County Legislature, seeking to represent New York's first district in Congress. He's running against Democrat Bridget Fleming for the open seat that's been held since 2014 by Republican Lee Zeldin. He's now running for governor against Kathy Hochul. On this episode, hear editors Steve Wick and Joe Workmeister and reporters Tim Gannon and Brianne Letta learn more about Nick's core issues as he makes the case to earn your vote on Election Day, November 8th. This interview was recorded on Friday, October 21st, and has been edited for length and clarity. So talk to us about your journey in politics. Where, where did it all begin, and, and what's your hoping, what are you hoping for now? Where, where did you start in politics? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a family thing for me. Uh, my, virtually my whole family has served. My uh, father was a police officer. Both of my grandfathers were city cops. My stepdad was a Navy man. Um, after I graduated from St. Anthony's, I went off to the Naval Academy and served 11 years in a Navy uniform. My brother uh, was a Marine for 20 years under a Bronze Star in Iraq. And I've gotten involved in uh, politics after I left the Navy. I left the Navy after 11 years, came home to Long Island to marry my high school sweetheart, earned an MBA, a law degree, started a family. And soon thereafter, I got involved in government and politics to help give back, to have a flag in my office and to be part of a, a good cause to help others uh, like my family has done throughout. Uh, I was involved in the annual board of trustees for six years. I was the elections commissioner here in Suffolk County for seven years. I was also a state senator's chief of staff. I'm presently the chief of staff in the county legislature where I can help solve uh, some of Long Island's uh, problems as well. And uh, in February, I was nominated to run for Congress and I'm quite excited to have the opportunity to further give back uh, on a federal level now. In your role in the legislature, can you talk about the the cyber hacking and what it might do for election night? I mean, is it going to impact election night? And it, it seems like it's taking a long time to get this thing resolved for people. What is your sense of where it is now? I'm uh, prohibited from disclosing some of the details. Uh, for security reasons, we've been instructed not to uh, get into the particulars, which might tend to reveal where some of the vulnerabilities are uh, or perhaps were. Um, but I am optimistic that government will uh, figure this out and have it figured out for Election Day such that election machines uh, will operate properly. Those, you know, in my specific experience, operate independent of the county network. So I have no issues with the machines themselves. Um, I've been told the reporting as it will happen right. uh, online should be uh, okay. But nevertheless, uh, we, our elections were fair and accurate before we reported results on, on websites. And, uh, and voters should be confident in whatever result gets promulgated that night. But you feel that the election night will know who won, will get an accurate count and yeah, all that? Yeah, and, and if worse comes to worse, you may have to just telephone somebody like the old days and say, you know, what are the counts? And the great thing about our election system here in New York State especially is it's a bipartisan endeavor. For every one Republican, mm-hmm. there's a Democrat, and nothing gets processed, counted, announced without both parties being a part of it. Right. And the public has a right to be confident in that process. So looking at your political journey, talk to us about what you want to accomplish if you're elected uh, to Congress. It's a a big shift from Board of Elections and trustee in Amityville. Um, Why are you running for Congress and what what 
what's out there that's good, what's out there that's bad. Yeah, I, I think that any uh, prospective member of Congress should understand the dichotomy of his or her office, that there's an obligation to serve the country and there's an obligation to serve the residents of the district, and one needs to be good at both of those things at the same time. There's definitely some priorities that need to be addressed by uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, first on my list is having the country become more energy independent. That would help us make better national security decisions and have uh, better economic uh, conditions afterwards. You know, you don't have to go too much further than the grocery store or the gas station to see how much higher prices have gotten in the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of that can be solved by tapping into our own energy resources here. We could do it safely. We absolutely must do it safely. Um, and we can do it in contrast to where the oil is being taken out of the ground in places like Venezuela and Russia where it's not being done safely. That's not to say that I'm a, you know, an only petroleum uh, politician. I think that we should continue investments in wind, solar, battery, and other things. I think those are a better part of our future going forward. But right now, we need to better tap into our own uh, natural resources. We're, we as a nation are sitting on 43.8 billion barrels of proven oil reserves in the southern tier of New York. There's a plethora of natural gas there that could be safely extracted. Again, I would stress the word safely done. And when done, we can, like I said earlier, make better national security decisions by not relying on nations who are adversarial to us. And we can pass off savings to regular folks who are struggling to pay their bills. Two-thirds of Long Islanders live paycheck to paycheck. And the money used to run out on the 30th or 31st of the month. Now it's running out on the 25th and 6th. And that means more money on the credit cards. That means less discretionary spending, less investments for families and vacations and everything in between. And folks are hurting. I think the government can help get us out of this mess. I think the second thing the government could do is balance its budgets better. That's a bipartisan problem in Washington. For 20 years, neither party who has controlled the House has balanced a federal budget. We're sitting on $31 trillion in debt, and we have a $1 trillion federal budget deficit. I think parties need to work together in order to not to have that massive overspending year after year. And if we make progress on those two issues, I think you'll start to see prices come down and Long Islanders uh, live in better prosperity. One of the things that worries people about you know, the future of our democracy, which we've had for, what, 245 years or something, is the inability to accept the results of an election. I mean, obviously we have, since 2020, um, seemingly millions of Americans who believe the election was stolen in some way. Where do you come down on all that, and how do we move away from this idea that a conspiracy theory kind of owns us from 2020? Yeah, so I was the elections commissioner here in Suffolk County, as you know, in 2020, and I voted despite pressure from a lot of folks within my own party not to certify Suffolk's result. I voted to certify Suffolk's results. I worked with my Democrat counterpart, uh, the Democrat commissioner at the time, and we worked to certify uh, New York's and Suffolk County specifically elections. Now, that's not to say I don't have questions about how we can make our voting system better. At the top of the list, I think, is having New York State become the 37th state to have voter ID. I think we as a state should rely less on absentee ballots. We should get back to what we agreed upon for 100 years from both parties, where absentee ballots should generally go to people who need them for medical reasons, people who are legitimately on vacation outside the county, and people who are of military service and some other smaller categories. 
I would resist the temptation to become an all mail-in state because both parties for 100 years agreed there is more fraud and less reliability in absentee ballots because there's just simply not a chain of custody. And there's more fraud by coercion. We know that there's you know, assertive relatives that we all have who might lean on a kid in college or a grandparent in a nursing home or both to exert their preference on, on a ballot where that can't be done uh, or it's much harder to be done in the privacy of a voting booth. I, if I was a member of Congress at the time, I would have voted to certify the election. He would have voted to Absolutely. certify. I think that when an individual or a group has an issue with election results, the proper form for that is a court of law to present evidence and to have a judge or a jury decide upon that evidence. I don't think that it should be up to 435 politicians to decide the validity of results. And I would point to 2016 where there are 17 Democrats who voted to reject the results that led to President Trump being the certified winner. This is a bipartisan problem as well. And as a member of uh, Congress, I would be very inclined to certify results because, again, because I think that the courts are the right venue to express one's objections. That January, I think it was 147 uh, members of the House said, we're not going to accept it. You would not have been among that. Correct. Just um, a quick question related to, you mentioned uh, the voter ID. Um, Opponents of that would argue that um, that would disenfranchise voters. Uh, How would you respond to that? And what kind of examples have there been of people going to different polling stations and and, and impersonating people to uh, forge signatures and cast multiple votes? So 50 years ago, that might have been a proper assertion where certain segments of the population based on race or economic uh, status might not have access to IDs. That's simply factually no longer the case. There's a Supreme Court case that originates out of the state of Indiana. I think it's called Crawford versus Marion County, where the Supreme Court, this is back in 2008, voted six to three. One of the liberal justices, the so-called liberal justices, voted to validate Indiana state law, which included a provision, two provisions. One, that if somebody who didn't have an ID wanted to get one, they would get one at no cost. And two, if they presented themselves at a polling place to vote without an ID, they would vote affidavit, and they would be given time to get an ID subsequent. That is a fair law that's been held constitutional in a bipartisan manner. Political appointees from both parties validated that law. That's what New York should have. And there's simply not any fact basis to folks can't access IDs. I think that 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 assertion itself, I think, is racist to imply that certain races or economic uh, status people uh, wouldn't have access to to an ID. If nothing else, it would inspire confidence in our elections. And to, to answer your last question about, like, how do you prove it? It's hard to prove what you're not allowed to prove. You know, in, in a New York State polling place, because you're not allowed to ask for an ID, you merely have to rely upon a signature. And the signature is analyzed by polling inspectors who average, whose average age is 72 years of age, who have to process hundreds of voters every couple of hours. The name of the game there is speed. It's not accuracy. And now we're signing on poll pads where signatures are inherently sloppy. The signature comparison is not an efficient process to ensure that the voter who claims who they are is actually who they are. All right. Well, uh, switch topics uh, a little bit here. And you know, one of the biggest things that we've been hearing about, obviously, lately is after the um, uh, Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion has become back a uh, you know, uh, major topic here. And uh, so, you know, if you want to maybe just explain your stance on where... Um, is your, your stance on abortion and, and, and what, what confidence would the voters have that uh, um, women's reproductive rights would ma- 
maintain uh, as they are in New York, and uh, you know what could potentially change at the federal level at this point after that decision. So I'm a student of the law, having earned a law degree from Hofstra University, and the Supreme Court decision clearly states this is now 100% a, a state issue. It's no longer a federal issue, and. We live in a blue state with the most liberal abortion laws, and the law in this state is one can terminate their pregnancy in the 40th week. You can have it done by a non-doctor. And my opponent's now spending more than a million dollars trying to make what is a bona fide state issue. And she knows, by the way, she's an attorney, and she understands the law. But she's trying to make what is so clearly a state's issue, a federal issue, and it's simply not. I would tell you that regarding the Graham bill, where Lindsey Graham is trying to make it back to a federal issue, I would not vote for the Graham bill or another one that would effectuate any change in abortion rights. I think that is clearly a state's issue. But I'll state for the record you know, what my preference is on the issue. And though I'm not running for state office and I don't have a vote in this issue, my stance is I do not oppose abortion when it comes to rape, incest, or life of the mother. I do not oppose abortion in the first trimester. Conversely, I do oppose abortion in the second and third trimesters. I would insist that government funds not be used for abortion. And I would also insist that parents get notified before their minor child contemplates an abortion. That's my stance. I think if there's extremism to be called out in this race or in general, it's those who support 40th week abortions. One of the things uh, your opponent has said in relation to cases of rape, incest, um, you know, what she has said, I guess, is that if, if that happens, it's very difficult for, you know, someone to kind of just um, sort of prove that, you know, this happened because of a, a rape or an incest. And, and it, there's not much time, I guess, for uh, that to be, you know, kind of proven where somebody could get um, the care that they want and, uh, and that it would potentially put doctors at risk if they have to decide, you know, is, was this a rape or not, before, you know, in a very narrow window of when the procedure could be done. Um, how, how do you respond to those concerns? Yeah, I, I think that's another scare tactic here. The states that do have provisions for and exceptions for rape have a very low bar on forcing the woman to prove that she was raped. The, the mere claim in most states is enough to have access to abortion. In New York State, it's not an issue. Um, and that's where we live, and that's who, whose votes we're asking for. And to scare people on that issue, I think, is to be at least insincere, and if not, to be extremely uh, dishonest. Has your position kind of evolved on that, Nick? I mean, obviously, public opinion seems, in, particularly in a blue state, um, seems to be you know very much for Roe v. Wade. Ha, ha, where were you five or ten years ago on this, and is it different from where you are now? So I think that because it was a settled issue five or ten years ago, um, most of us hadn't given much thought uh, of changing. I think that the Supreme Court Dobbs decision kind of shook everything up and made policymakers analyze where they are in this issue. Uh, you know, for a couple of years, I've stood pretty strong on the government not being involved in your vaccine choice or other things related to health care uh, pursuant to COVID. And I think that to be consistent with that assertion, I think that one needs to also respect there's some sort of balance in the 40 weeks, three trimesters or whatnot. There's some sort of balance between an individual's privacy and protecting a life of a child. For me, the balance is between the first and second trimester. If, if elected to Congress, we, we really want to talk to you about local local issues as well, um, things that affect the East End in particular, the first district. And one of them, looking forward, when you talk to all the trustees out here, is climate change and the rising sea level. You now have streets that routinely flood at a full moon. Um, nor'easters have been multi-million dollar problems out here in terms of sand replacement. 
What do you think the role of your role in Congress will be in terms of these two little forks sticking out into the ocean and how we deal with what's what's here now and what's what is potentially coming? Yeah, so I'll say on the outset, climate change is real. Man and, and mankind affects uh, what our climate is and what our environment is, and mankind's actions absolutely do affect that. I will, though, say that it should be a multinational approach on how we um, improve the conditions of our environment and the things that would cause to degrade it. I don't think that the U.S. should alone tackle this. I think it's the responsibility of the federal government, specifically the executive branch, through its diplomatic powers or treaties or, or trade agreements to ensure that the U.S. alone isn't bearing the brunt of this. Um, I think that China and Venezuela are spewing a ton of carbon emissions into the atmosphere, which negatively affect America's environment. We have trade deals with nations all across this world. Part of those trade deals should be ensuring that they get uh, held to a higher standard than they're operating right now. That's a more global issue, but locally, I would support infrastructure investments like the Fire Island to Montauk Point infrastructure project, which helps fortify beaches, which helps protect properties like you mentioned earlier from, from flooding. I think that this, the, the approach should be multifold, not just uh, one facet. Yeah. yeah, out here, we're obviously very focused on preservation as well. We sort of think of ourselves as very separate from kind of the rest of Long Island. Um, preserving farms, preserving farm families, preserving agriculture. What would be your role in Congress in terms of reinforcing that? Actually, after this, I have a meeting with uh, some Farm Bureau folks, and we're going to talk about issues like that. I think that um, we should embrace Long Island's tradition and history, and we should keep the East End, um, how, it, how it has been thriving on the farm-based economy. I think that the government plays a role in that, specifically in the labor market. Uh, the state uh, labor board uh, recently created this uh, overtime rule that makes it harder for Long Island farmers to do their job. And I would work with colleagues in the state legislature to ensure that that gets revisited. Those sorts of farming labor rules should be made by those who are aware of the industry. The farmers want to work, and, uh, and they would want um, accommodations to ensure that they have the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mother Nature is a partner to a lot of farmers, I've been told, and she's not always a cooperating partner. And, uh, and that t sometimes causes workers to work 60, 70, 8-hour weeks, where the week preceding they only work 10 or 20. There needs to be a greater understanding from the government's perspective on how to properly administer labor rules with respect to a volatile market such as, uh, such as farming. I just wanted to get into a little bit, of, I know, um, in your campaign and obviously many of the uh, fellow Republicans in, in different campaigns, public safety has been a top concern. And... Um, you, you've been vocal against um, criticizing, or you've been vocal criticizing uh, the state's bail reform and, and pointing to that as a key reason for uh, some of the increases in crime that we've seen. Obviously, that's a state issue that was done at the state level. Uh, at the federal level, though, what would you try to do to address public safety and crime? You know, I certain, certainly wouldn't vote for the Democrat bill that stands for a federal bail reform clause that would do things like remove qualified immunity from police officers. I think we need to do things to empower our cops not to undermine them. And the federal government has a role in investing in our local police departments to ensure they're properly staffed, equipped, and trained. And I think that the country's $5 trillion budget could find some money to ensure that here in Suffolk County, our local departments have the resources necessary to ensure that the bad guys are not running the streets. Is it fair to say you think that the, our local departments 
don't have enough resources to kind of ad- adequately do the job? I would say with respect to training, I think that training is the big thing. You know, that's often not included in the traditional budgets. Having been uh, serving a police committee from my village, I understand that you know, where the money in a specific department goes and oftentimes training is the one thing that gets left out. In the military, we spend about a third of our time training and, uh, and a third deploying. I think those ratios are, 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 are much different in the police departments where they probably spend 2% of their time training and 98% of their time operating. I think if we invested more into the training, then, uh, then I think that we would have safer streets uh, as a result. When you're out, and we asked this to Bridget Fleming when she was in yesterday, when you're out campaigning uh, in the district, Nick, what are the issues people are telling you? What are the, give, name three things that they're most concerned about. Economic issues, public safety, and their own freedoms. And probably in that order is, is what I'm hearing from people. Public when safety. Economic issues, public safety, then protecting freedoms. What do you mean by protecting freedoms, if you can kind of elaborate on that? Having government less involved in people's lives. And this is mainly the reaction post-COVID about specifically forcing parents to have their kids be vaccinated. A lot of parents with whom I speak are tremendously anxious about the government making that health care decision for them. And they want politicians to put roadblocks in between government and their kids. And public safety, they're talking about that a lot? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the folks uh, with whom I speak used to travel to the city quite frequently. Now, because of public safety reasons, they don't. And now they see some of that crime creeping out to uh, the more suburban counties. And it used to be for 20 years, the only reason, or the main reason people were leaving New York State, and specifically Long Island, was the high cost of living. We, of course, as a state, lead the country in out-of-state migration. And we had traditionally been, because of our high cost of living, driven by higher property taxes and higher income taxes. Now it's the public safety threat that has some folks leaving as well. If you're once in Congress, go back to the financial aspect of things and the cost of living. What what can be done? We're obviously in a very high inflationary period right now. How would you address that? Yeah, it's, Senator Paul has a penny plan, and it's a start to balancing the federal budget. It forces cabinet secretaries to pare their budgets down by 1% in the first year. We have to start somewhere. There's some grander ideas out there, but we actually have to acknowledge that this is a reality. It's a national security threat. We borrow a lot of money from our adversaries and specifically the Chinese Communist Party. I think that that is the thing that we should be focusing on for the next 10 or 20 years is reducing our debt reliance upon nations with whom we're adversarial. And now, like you said, with the higher interest rates, now that's going to be even more damaging and dangerous to our own national security. So the start, I think, is Senator Paul's penny plan. Sticking with national security for a minute, um, I think Kevin McCarthy surprised some people this week by suggesting that if, if, if the Republicans become the majority in the House, that they'll, they'll question the amount of money we're, you know, the question the blank check, I think he referred to it, to Ukraine. Support for Ukraine seems to be widely supported in America and obviously Western Europe. You're, in, you're sitting in Congress in January or February and this discussion comes up. What position would you take? I'm proud of America being the world's only superpower. We can't cede that authority uh, from the world stage. We need to have eyes and ears throughout the globe understanding what um, other nations and adversaries potentially to us are doing and would possibly do harm to our interest abroad and here at home. I think that that comes with investments throughout the globe to ensure economic and national security. I do believe that we as a nation should be investing in, in Ukraine, but I do hope that 
the politicians who are as interested in Ukraine's border are as interested in our own as well. So I think there's a balance to be had, and I think that we can get our European partners to pony up more to ensure that it's a more strategic and balanced approach with how we invest in protecting a innocent people and the Ukrainian people against a hostile aggressor like Putin. And, uh, and I wouldn't be willing to cede America's uh, role uh, on the world stage in that. But you wouldn't immediately, you wouldn't just say, why are we doing this or why are we spending so much money there? Or what would be your position if the Republican majority says we really need to cut back on this? What would you want to say to them? You know what doesn't cost any money is good diplomacy. Out of the White House, through our embassies, through our State Department, having good diplomatic ties and relationships and getting our partners overseas to do more. That doesn't cost the American taxpayer anything. All it costs is the, the executive branch some political clout, which we have a lot of as the world's only superpower. That's the first path that that's the first path that needs to be explored. But do you fear there might be a time in the next year or so where you would pull back from supporting Ukraine? Every bill, every spending bill should be measured on its own merit. And I think there's balance to be had. Going back uh, quickly along the public safety lines, uh, gun violence is another uh, big concern of many people. You know, we've seen recent um, mass shootings uh, this past year. Uh, how would you balance um, supporting Second Amendment and also trying to curtail gun violence in America? And what kind of measures uh, can be put in place to try to curb that? Yep. I would support the ban on bump stocks. I would support the ban on automatic weapons. But I think we also need to uh, figure out some new solutions to a multi-decade problem. I have three school-aged children. I put them on the bus every morning. My wife is a public school teacher, and this is a legitimate anxiety to my own family about, you know, will our school be the next to be a target? And I think we need to have new solutions to this. And I think that where um, school boards are willing to make um, school districts harder to attack. And I was a military officer, and we learned quite uh, more than a few times that bad guys are cowards and they attack weaker targets. And I think that where school boards are willing, the federal government should invest in more security measures at our schools to ensure that our kids are not the easy targets that the bad guys and the cowards would see them as. The politicians have plenty of security around them. They have plenty of protection when they travel around. They have plenty of protection at their homes. I think our kids are more valuable and should be afforded the same amount of protection concurrently. I think we need to do a better job at analyzing the mental health aspect of this issue. You know, we see that you know, shooter after shooter is, uh, are quite disturbed. And I think we could do a better job analyzing who it is that it has a propensity to this violence and after due process, restrict them uh, from their access to weapons. So, so the fe federal government should be providing uh, more funds to local s school districts to be able to uh, implement better security measures? Yeah, when the school districts are asking for them. Do you think in eight, I mean, the, the, the bill that was up, I think it was last year, you know, should an 18-year-old be able to buy an AR-15, a semi-automatic, or is that just a bad idea all around? I would discriminate not based upon age, but based upon mental capacity. In other words, a, a, a mentally healthy 18-year-old could, could should, should be able to buy one? Yes. Even though I don't, I mean, what would their uses be? What's the use for one? If you're a hunter, you certainly don't need one, right? I mean, who, why would someone need an AR-15 in a magazine? Is your question, what is the use of a Second Amendment? Yeah, well, I understand the Second Amendment. And I'm just understanding, should there be limits on the kinds of weapons yeah, particularly one weapon of mass destruction, a, a military weapon. If you want to use one, maybe you should join the military, as you did. 
Um, I'm just wondering whether that could be one thing that we could at least cut out. Again, I would support a, uh, an extension of the ban on, a, on uh, automatic weapons as well as ones with bump stocks. Okay. One question that I have um, is Biden recently passed the Student Loan Forgiveness Program, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. And if you were elected to Congress, um, what, what are you thinking about um, things to address uh, ballooning student debt in the country? With due respect, Biden didn't pass anything. He signed with a stroke of a pen an executive order, and it wasn't loan forgiveness. It was a loan transfer of debt from those who signed up for it to those who hadn't signed up for it. And it's a tremendously unpopular, un-American program that, in my opinion, is an attempt to bribe voters in an election year. We have a bona fide student debt problem, and if it's going to be solved, it should be solved by the legislature. The, the executive, a governor, or a president shouldn't have the unilateral power by the stroke of his or her pen to expend taxpayer money. I believe in the Constitution. In the 10th grade, we all understood that there is a balance in this government, that there are three co-equal branches of government, and the legislature is the one with the power of the purse. So if there is to be a solution on this issue, it should be taken after a vote of the House and the Senate and then signed by the president. The president shouldn't be using his COVID executive powers to do this loan transfer. That said, I think the start of the um, uh, the start of the solution to the issue is not forcing every kid, as a parent, uh, not forcing every kid to go to a four-year college. Here in Long Island especially, there's plenty of good-paying jobs on farms, as plumbers, electricians, and in between, where one can provide for themselves and their family just nicely. You can go to a trade school before a lot of those jobs. And I think that encouraging folks and incentivizing from a governmental perspective more trade schools would be the start of the issue. So a lot of the uh, justices who were recently confirmed, um, you know, like you know how traditionally there's been a balance um, of justices who tend to lean more left and justices who tend to lean more right. Um, right now, the court has more justices who maybe lean right, and people were suggesting maybe one topic, one suggestion people made was maybe they shouldn't be elected for, not elected, but um, confirmed for life. Um, so I wasn't sure if that was something you thought about, if that was something um, you'd be talking about if you were elected in Congress. I've talked to thousands of people in this campaign, and not one has brought that up to me, so no, I haven't been thinking about that. Okay, great. What should uh, the country do about uh, Taiwan and the situation there? I actually deployed to Taiwan for a little while uh, in the southern uh, port city of Kaohsiung, and we have a strong strategic cooperative relationship with Taiwan. Uh, it is part of America's layered defense against uh, China, who inevitably uh, will be a stronger aggressor towards the U.S., especially as their food supply dwindles and the reality of the debt that they've taken on themselves becomes a greater reality. I think that we are wise to maintain strong ties with Taiwan. They're a strong trading partner of ours. They're a strong military partner of ours. And, uh, and that's within, uh, that's best for America's strategic interests. And what about uh, China in, uh, in general? What should we do there as far as uh, not buying so many made in China things? That's a, that's a great, great point. I think that when we deliberate over uh, trade agreements, we should understand that we have the upper hand. We as a country have the upper hand in, our, in that trade deal and that a lot of American consumers, obviously through Amazon and everywhere else, are buying a lot of Chinese products. The Chinese economy relies on Americans making those purchases. We should understand that relationship for what it is and exert the proper leverage over China, especially as it comes to things like ripping off our intellectual property and holding them to a higher environmental standard. With Ukraine, uh, 
you might have answered this. Would you be in favor of ever uh, sending troops over there? I think it's way premature for that. And I think that that's a major decision that needs to be contemplated uh, at the most serious levels and understanding the downside risks that would come with a decision like that. Um, General Powell, uh, when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had a Powell Doctrine that clearly laid out the criteria upon which commanders and the commander-in-chief specifically should contemplate before sending troops into harm's way. And I don't think we've met the right amount of criteria to uh, to send troops to, to Ukraine. So you're running to fill the seat um, that's currently held by uh, Lee Zeldin, uh, also a Republican. How, how would you just grade um, his... Uh, his time in Congress um, these these past few terms? I don't spend time grading my would-be predecessor. I spend time figuring out what I would do uh, if I get to office. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. So I'll just uh, if you want to kind of give one last uh, pitch to the voters uh, why they should uh, vote for you. Yeah, for, uh, for 246 years, uh, this nation has had a strong history and provided more freedom and more opportunity to more people than any other nation our world has ever known. We're living at a watershed moment right now where there might not be the same opportunity for the next generation as there is for this generation. We need to make serious decisions as a government uh, with respect to our economy, with respect to our national security, and with respect to our freedoms. And we should elect serious leaders who understand the things that have made this country the great country that it is, and to preserve those ideals, both through legislation and through rhetoric. I would humbly submit that I'm the better candidate this cycle to do so. Thank you very much. That was our episode of A Closer Look. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was produced by Tara Smith, and the music heard is courtesy of Storyblocks, Let the Expert Explain, by Music Media Group. We'll see you next time. Be sure to follow our election coverage online at suffoltimes.com and riverheadnewsreview.com.